Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Jamie Rowe is a buddy that I haven't seen in probably 20 years. I went to get my hair cut a couple weeks ago, and the young lady that cut my hair turned out to be his daughter. I took that as a sign to get him on the podcast. Jamie's a screaming rock singer that made a bunch of Christian rock records with a band called Guardian, and I have another connection with that band that you'll hear about. Anyway, fast forward 20 years, he's living 30 minutes from me. He just made a great country rock-ish record called This Is Home. He's definitely found something in what he calls 80s rock in a cowboy hat. It's such a great record, so go get it. Anyway, took a lot of steps to get here, and here's Jamie Rowe. Jamie Rowe, yes, what are you doing? <laughs> Hanging out with Bart Allman Golly. for the first time in years. How long has it been? Seriously. Actually, I think the last time I literally saw you was probably, I'm going to guess, 95 maybe? Man. 96? Something like that. I remember coming into your office in RCA in 1990, in the fall of 1990. Okay. Yes. I stopped and visited a lot. I just went in and Carl had said, you know, you, you know, meet my friend Bart and stuff. And I did. So I got in there because I was just like, <laughs> I couldn't believe I was at RCA Records, you know? So that was, that was a long time. Golly. Well... Thank you for coming out here to Disgraceland, man. Glad to do it. Love it. Out here in the country. So you were born, if I have my notes right, in Princeton, Indiana. True story. Uh, <laughs> yes. Were you, uh, is that from a musical family? Uh, not at all, other than in hindsight, now I can realize my mom actually had really good pitch and she could sing. Okay. She would sing around the house and stuff, but I, nobody, no one in my family that I could think of was like, okay, they're a musician. You know what I mean? Right. My dad was the water superintendent in town, was a coal miner growing up. You know what I mean? So he's, you know, a man's man type of guy. Yeah. And my uh, mom was, you know, she was a cook that worked anything from like restaurants to nursing homes and to summer camps, whatever you know, they cook and stuff. But the thing that's interesting is most people don't, uh, have this thing. My dad, when I was born, was 57 years old. Wow. And my mom was 48. So when I got to be a teen, my parents were as old as most people's grandparents. Yeah. So I have that experience. Like I said, my dad passed when I was 17 mm. and my mom passed when I was 30. So I've been an orphan for, you know, over a decade and a half. And so more. So. Well, so how then did you get into singing and playing and writing? And stuff? You know, what's funny. Um, I was really, I'll give you the thing, I was really like, you know, the typical sports kid, yeah. fell in love with Kiss growing up as a, as a preteen, you know what I mean? Just, you know, they were they were Superman and Spider-Man with, with guitars to me, you know what I mean? <laughs> Loved it and like obsessed with it. Um, did, I remember, you know, discovering Cheap Trick and that was my first concert when I was 10 years old. I saw the Dream Police tour. I still remember a lot about that show. Um my mom ordered a Kenny Rogers record through the Columbia House Club and got the numbers wrong, and it sent Van Halen two, and we kept it. So it's like that's how I got into rock and roll. I remember I, I can say this: this is a pure rock and roll thing. 
in third grade, I faked being sick so I could stay home and listen to Toys in the Attic by Aerosmith. You know what I mean? So that was it. So I had a love for music. Yeah. But then as I got to be a teenager and stuff, I used to entertain my friends. I would realize I could imitate people's voices. Now my voice has changed, you know, through you know older years. So I don't do as much now. But there was a period there when I'm, I could hear a voice and almost in, in, imitate it like almost perfectly. Really? Like Paul Stanley and Queensryche and, you know, yeah. and, and stuff. And I would just do some Bon Jovi. So I would entertain my friends like this. And they would always, dude, you got to do that and stuff. And so now if I try to do it for you, you'd, you'd laugh like, well, you don't sound anything like him. You know what I mean? <laughs> but at the time I did. And then we went to the, one of those uh, Six Flags amusement parks in St. Louis, Missouri. And they had one of those, you can be a star. I think it was like, you can be a star was the name of the booth. And it was like one of those things, basically a karaoke mm-hmm. track. Yeah. So my friends paid for me to sing Smoking in the Boys Room nice. by Motley Crue. And I did it. And then they had me do Wanted Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi. So this had to have been, what, 86, 87? And they were being recorded? Yeah. They recorded and stuff. So we go on this trip and come out. And on the bus back home, Everybody's listening, like passing around stuff like that. Right. Then I'm making copies of it, and it's like being passed around. So I'm like this singer, dude. So <laughs> anyway, to make a very long story short, about a year or so later, uh, my brother had a band, and my mom, I would always hang out and want to be a part of it. He didn't have a bass player, and so I was trying to learn how to play bass, okay. and just because I wanted to be in a band. And my mom, Is he, he older than you? Yeah, he's three years older. My mom had a uh, deal with him because he lived in a house that they owned. All right, you can live there for free, okay, but your brother's got to be in your band. Right. And so that's it. So I was in. You know what I mean? So, and that's how it worked out. Your first um, manager. My first, yeah, first thing. And so, <laughs> but, and the thing is, that band was called Tempest. Okay. And what's funny is, we got a record deal and released their first record in 87. I was 17 years old. I'd only been singing for a year. And I've been playing bass even less. Let's put it this way. My bass playing was so good that when we went to record the record and came back home, when I got the mix, they'd, re- they'd hired a studio guy to come and replace all my bass. Didn't tell me a thing. So, <clears throat> But I wasn't the singer in the band. The producer heard me singing and said, why isn't this guy singing? Really? Because I was better than my brother. Okay. And he said, let's try him on a track or two. And so I ended up singing half the record. And so by the time I got home from making that record in 87... I was just from here on, okay, I'm the singer. We're going to get a new bass player. I'm just going to be the singer. Yeah. So that's how that came about. The thing that's awesome, and this is, this is really cool, because how I'm standing in front of you right now is a result of this. We were called Tempest. Yes. The record label at the time was a small Christian label called Refuge in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Okay. They had an imprint called Pure Metal, and they were like one of the early people in Christian music to, to get on board with metal post-striper. Right. There was another, evidently another thrash metal band in Ohio called Tempest. And when they signed us, they thought we were, they were signing that band. And so now they had, to be fair, they had heard a demo because they funded a track and we sent it to them and stuff. And so they knew that we were the sound. They just thought that was the same band that was their right. sound. But how we know this is the bass player and singer for that other band was African-American. And I remember the president of the label come out and meet us all. He goes, where's the black guy? <laughs> and so that's when we knew. Right. So anyway, uh, so that's how I'm, but that led to me joining Guardian and all sorts of stuff. That's why I'm here today because that's how I know you. So all that. Well, how did you get from Indiana to L.A.? Well, um, I lived in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where that label was at. Okay. Um, in 1990, in January, they had moved me and my brother up to there. And like we stayed in the townhouse that was owned by the label. And he's, the, the, to be fair, the, the label guy just thought, you know, I want to develop these guys more. Yeah. We put out two records and, you know, they did what they did. You know, nothing to write home about. But they, at least we had, we had a certain amount of bass. And everything, and uh, we got up there. I think my brother lasted about two weeks, and 
went back home. I stayed. Yeah. And they were going to work with me as like as a solo artist. Okay. And everything. And during that time, um, I found out that Guardian was looking for a singer. And I loved Guardian, but I didn't like the guy's voice as much beforehand. But I loved like Tony's playing and everything. Yeah. You know, and they were working with Striper, which I was Striper obsessed. So I was stuck with anyway. Yeah. To make a really long story short, um, I found out they were looking for a singer. I went through a friend. I got a number, and I'd known Tony through some other things okay. because when my father passed away, um, I really should get back on this. But when my father passed away, Tony was about the only person I knew in, in life that had a similar experience because his mom died when he was 12. Oh, wow. So he became like almost like a mentor to me, even though he lived in California. I lived in Indiana at the time. We would talk a lot on the phone. Yeah. He, he helped me through that period. It was kind of cool. Oh, I bet. Outside of music. Yeah. You know what I mean? We, we, we met talking music and here we are becoming a friend. And so anyway, I found out they were looking for a singer. I called Tony and I said, uh, and he heard my band. He didn't like my band. Right. And so he, uh, he said, uh, I said, I'm looking for a singer. He goes, yeah. He goes, we're looking for somebody that's kind of like a Dave Coverdale, you know, almost like a Joey Tempest with some grit. So I said, dude, that's totally me. Right. And he's like, okay. Yeah. He goes, well, I'll tell you what, just go into a studio, set up a mic and just sing. Let me hear you sing. That's it. I said, that, I said, okay. And he said later, the thing was funny. They'd ask that to everybody. Nobody would do it right, with no music, nothing. I was like, okay. Oh, um, so you just went in an acapella. I was, I was, I was oh, yeah, yeah. And so I, I remember, dude, I, was, I literally, that's what I did. Like, oh, yeah. And the thing is, when he said he wanted a bluesy singer, I'd seen this band called Hurricane Alice the night before we talked. Right. And I remember that singer. I noticed that when he'd sing, every, after he's like, boom, bro, without a dollar. Everything at the end of the line had, yeah. So this audition tape, that's what I'm doing. Like, I was like, oh, yeah. Anyway, I overnighted it and called every day for a week and stuff like that. Like, hey man, did you get it? Get it. I'm checking the tracking. This is pre-internet. Yeah, checking the tracking. And his wife finally tells him, like, he's been calling every day. You need to go buy FedEx and pick that thing up, or they say they're going to send it back tomorrow if you don't get it. Okay. And so he goes to get it and stuff because he didn't want to get because he didn't want to hurt my feelings. Right. He, he goes, I knew it was going to be terrible. And so he's driving <laughs> down the van. I mean, he's driving down the van and he heard it and he said he pulled off. He goes, he goes, it knocked him out. He goes, this is exactly what we were looking yeah. for. So, what? Ten days later, I was on a plane to L.A. and. Went in, met the guys, didn't, you know, didn't know anybody but Tony. And uh, we just started playing stuff. And he said, well, here's some ideas I'm working on. And that night we wrote a song called Power of Love. And the first thing that came out of my mouth is still the chorus to this day. Really? And everything. And then we wrote a song called The Rain and the same, almost the same mm-hmm. type of thing situation. So those two things. So um, that was it. You know what I mean? That's how I joined Cardian. So that's how I became L.A. How did LA. the Elefante brothers and Pachyderm and everything get involved well dave and tony were the only two remaining members of guardian left they were assigned to enigma records at the time and ah, okay. they is this pre-carl yes okay. right pre-carl almost at the same time so but while they were there uh the original drummer and singer left after the first tour and realized oh this ain't the life for me you right. know what i mean so they get carl. carl carl joined about three four months before i did okay so but tony and dave realized that when they were out playing and stuff like that, you know, cause the, the thing is basically, you know, Guardian was a Christian band yeah. with a capital C. Right. So the whole point, you know, the band was okay, play music, but you also just want to make an, a change in people's lives. Yeah. And they noticed that, you know, it was cool when they played the clubs, they, they met some interesting people and did some things, but when they would play like the church shows, that's where they'd meet the most screwed up people mm. and really felt like they were doing something. And so, they kind of almost hmm. shifted gears a little bit and stuff. And they thought like, you know, like having the Elefantes, you know, kind of say, if you ever want to come along, we got space for you. Yeah. So they signed Guardian without a singer. You know what I mean? Wow. And so, 
and just trusting this whole process. So when I came in there, you know, I flew out and auditioned. When I auditioned, like for real in the studio, I was, I was singing in, in front of John Alfonte, you know, in the studio. And that's, you know, I was 20 years old. You know, I'm like, wow. So, so but, did you know, did you know his stuff from Kansas? And yeah, stuff of like course. That? Yeah. So, you know, like, like fight fire with, dude, I had, I had that on eight track. I recorded that. I, this is I had one of those eight track recorders and I was probably, guess I was probably 10 or 12 years old. I remember calling the radio station and requesting fight fire with fire so I could record it onto eight track. Uh, and so here did I, that, yeah. did that. Uh, intimidate you or did you just look at it as a challenge? You, you and- know what's funny? I was, this is going to sense ignorance is truly bliss. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, like in the case of Tony, I didn't know that you're supposed to be intimidated just to sing into a microphone in front of somebody. Sure. I, you know, I just felt like this is, I just, I, I was too dumb to know that this yeah. isn't how it should be. Right. Um, I, I can't even say it was confidence. It was dumb. I, you know, I, I just didn't know. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, you're supposed to. I didn't know. Yeah. Everything. I, could, I just knew that I could sing, and whatever they wanted, I felt like I could. I could do it. Yeah. And everything. Or like die trying. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that. That's it. You know. And, and like I said, I'm a poor kid from Indiana, so it's like, dude, I don't. You know, I know what it's like to scrounge. You know, the couches for change. Yeah. To get, you know, stuff. So I don't have a lot of expectations at this point. So like, I'm just. You know, just, I love music. And for some reason, people think I'm good at it, so I'm going to go for it. And know? this is the biggest thing that ever happened to you. Absolutely. So it's like, what have you got to lose? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it changed the trajectory, trajectory of my life. You know what I mean? You guys made great sounding records on. <clears throat> we did, you know, especially with the, with Elefantes. Yep. We really, I mean, that first record, Fire and Love, is oh, to me that's that's still my favorite of all. Uh, and, you know, and as things progress through the years, and uh, you know, grunge kind of came over and changed the landscape. We end up making a switch, which, you know, the people who are really loyal to that early, like, hard rock hair yeah. melodic sound felt a little alienated. But it gave us about five more years than our peers when we made a shift. You know what I mean? Interesting. And so, you know, we had Steve Taylor produce, which we yeah. met Steve because we got thrown onto a tour with him and hit it off with him. And just thought it would be something new and something different. But um, I still think when it's hindsight, when it comes and looking back, the Elefante records are the, are the definitive yeah. records. And that's yeah. just, that's... that's to me too. So, and I and I love the Steve Taylor stuff, but yeah, you know, we, we made that Buzz record with Steve, oh, and yeah. Rick Will mixed it, and you know, Rick Will went on to mix all those big Incubus records and everything yeah. and stuff like that. It was just it was really cool. So, hmm. how much did you record here? How much do you record in L.A.? We recorded um, Fire and Love and Miracle Mile, the first two records in L.A. and, and Los Alamitos. Okay, and then the Elefantes built the Sound Kitchen. Right. In Franklin. And the first record to ever have anything done to it was we mixed our Swing Swing Swung record there. That was the first really? record ever done. We recorded in John's garage in Brentwood and then the studio was finished and so we mixed it there. We were the first record mixed there. So Dang. And then so everything else beyond that, that was yeah. Mm. So did you guys guys get tired of the rock versus Christian rock debate at the time because I know I did at the time I, th- I think so yeah, your listeners don't know you were in a in a band with our drummer for, beforehand so that's like, it's awesome so uh, we lived together yes and uh, and Carl to this day Carl's still just the sweetest guy there oh, of all of us in the band you know when I met in 1992 to now he's probably the guy who's still the 
pretty much the same old person. The rest yeah. of us are kind of radically changed a little bit. You know what I mean? So our personalities are a little bit different. Carl's, Carl's a steady guy. Well, he got he got out of music and never got bitter about it. Yeah. You know, he didn't keep going like, I'm 60 years old. And yeah. One of these days, I'm going to make it. Yeah. For me, though, here's what's funny is, you know, I'm very proud of what we did. I mean, do we still... You know, I just viewed us as being good at what we do. That was what I wanted to do. I just want to be good. So, you know, and through our uh, pass down deal through Epic, we got on Headbangers Ball, you know, and we had we had a little bit of mainstream presence. Um, And that was the time. If I were to start Guardian today, I would I would not be a, quote, Christian band and I would not work in a, quote, Christian industry Mm -hmm. because the opportunities now, you know, you've seen so many people like Skillet and POD and things like just if you're really good. Yeah, someone's going to pay attention, and give you the platform, and you're not limited to, to color with the three crayons. You yeah. get the whole set. Yeah. And so I would, if I was 20 years old and had a, a hard rock band, I would just say, let's just be a great band, and let you know, and we're Christians, so that's going to come through anyway. Yeah, but we, we're not going to have to announce people. Around, hey, everybody, we're here. We're Christians. We're you not going to throw. I would just be really great at what we do. <laughs> throw Bibles into the crowd exactly. like Striper. Yeah, you know what though? But that's that's worked for them. Hey, I got one. And yeah, I, I did too. You know, what <laughs> I mean? that's work. That's worked for them. And actually, and that's you know, I don't think that was ever a gimmick. That was just part of what they decided. This is what we yeah. were as a band. And you know, and they're still out. You know, killing it. Yeah. You know, for the most part, as much as much as you can. You know, they're not playing the stadium tour, right? But they're working consistently. And if you look at pictures of them. Healthy living's done pretty good for him compared to the peers. <laughs> well, and there's another guy, Michael Sweet, uh-huh. who makes all the records in his house, yeah. and they still he's got the biggest guitar sounds in the yeah. world with those splons and everything. Man, yeah, it sounds that's true. Freaking huge. But to give on your point and stuff like that, um, I always pushed for more mainstream acceptance of Guardian. Yeah, I was the I was the guy in the band that you know, like I loved you know getting in Metal Edge magazine. I loved all that stuff. Um, yeah. I even when we got our pass down deal with Epic. I made relationships with the people at Epic. Oh yeah, you know what I mean, just because I was just I really loved. When I say I love music, I loved. It. I could read the liner notes. I could tell you who the A and R person was, <sighs> who the you know who the assistant engineer was, you know who who the caterer was. <laughs> you know, if I got deep down, so I loved the whole process of it. But um, you know, and since then, you know, over the years, it's funny. We you know when you go to Europe, there is no separation of Christian or mainstream. Yeah, you know, it's just it's just music, music. It was really cool because I developed relationships and still now for doing other studio projects and things I've done over the years, I have a pretty equal Christian and non-Christian fan base Sure, these days. And that's, yeah. that's really nice Yeah, because, you know, it's like... Just be good at something, man. Well, and like you yeah. say, you're, you're, you are a Christian. It's going to come across. Exactly. Or, or at least they're going to know, dude, you don't cuss much, do you? And you yeah. don't drink much, do you? And you're in love <laughs> with your wife, aren't you? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's obvious to see. How many records did you do with Guardian? Uh, let me think. I did uh, Fire and Love, Miracle Miles, Swing, Swing, Swung, Buzz, Bottle Rocket, three Spanish records. And a live record. So totally official releases. Oh, and Almost Home. We did a reunion record okay. in 2013. So that's 10. That's 10, 10 legitimate studio records. I know, love Bottle Rocket too, man. Bottle Rocket. You know what? It's funny. That's still a polarizing record. Yeah. I, I still go back to I think Bottle Rocket is a good record. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a good Guardian record. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I wrote a lot of the music on that. You know what I mean? And to, to back up. We made the Swing, Swing, Swung record, yeah. which was an acoustic bass. And at the time, I didn't really care for the record. Yeah. And I had only written one song on it. 
And that's why I realized, okay, if I make another record, that I, I, I want to make sure I enjoy it. So I learned to write songs. I hardcore got into it. And so for the net, for Buzz and Bottle Rocket, I kind of got pushed toward the main music writer. Yeah. It's funny, the singer who doesn't really write a lot of lyrics all of a sudden started writing all the music. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I only know three chords, so, <laughs> you know. Hey man. But it worked. It's worked yeah. for, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So why do you think you guys kind of pulled back and stopped? I think it was just time, you know. Um, yeah. You know, it's it gets to a point, you know, Dave, Dave had gotten off the road in 98. Now, keep in mind, I'm, at that, it, I was 20 years old when I joined Guardian. Tony was 30. The other guys are about 10 years older than me. Yeah. So, you know, they, they were 10 years ahead in the, in the life game. You know, Dave got to be 38 and all of a sudden he got offered to work for Forefront Records and, right. you know, to get into A&R. And he did. He transitioned to that. Yeah. During that time, you know, you know, just like, you know, bands aren't guaranteed, you know, success forever. And, you know, 10 years in a band, nine or 10 years is considered old, Yeah, you know, to some people. And, and, and especially if you're working in Christian music, which is so youth group focused, you yeah. can come out of fashion almost overnight. You know, right. just, you, you age out of the program like Menudo. Yeah. You know what I mean? So Tony had gotten really successful at a, you know, mixing and he was mm-hmm. doing a lot of Christian radio remixes for a lot of bands, like a lot. And, uh, you know, and Carl obviously got off and, you know, started getting into the accounting and legal world and yeah. whatnot and stuff. And he's done great. I was the one who took the vow of poverty and still wanted to make music, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I did, um, you know, and the only thing I did, I, I did a studio project called Adrian Gale, mm-hmm. which was a, like basically a hair band that we, we knew we were making 80 sounding records. And that was like, we knew it. I wanted to ask you about that. Was that, was that a whole band? It was, but it was predominantly Vic, the guitar player. It was his project. He was the main songwriter. Okay. And then me as the voice and whoever else came along, Eddie Campbell was a guitar player and he was a, a big part of it. But like rhythm section, like Vic, the guitar, he also was a drummer. So he played drums on the records too. But live, we did a few things. It was kind of, perceived as a band but it was kind of a studio creation Mm -hmm. so i did three records with those guys and those were always those were paying gigs for me where i came in as a studio singer got paid a flat fee i think it was like 2500 bucks to sing the record yeah and you know and when you're struggling you know during the early 2000s not having that was like you know ten thousand dollar check to me yeah so it was good and i really i enjoyed the music and i liked the people i worked with a lot and so we took a break for a few years and after that we ended up making two more records and I had missed it in the camaraderie. I, I didn't do it as a paid studio thing. I just, I just did it. Yeah. And I, I still haven't gotten paid anything from it. That's okay. <laughs> I don't care. It was, it was, that was a point for love of music. I did that, but I also had a band called London calling in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. And we had a little something going. We, we never obviously had our thing, but we had a little industry buzz for a while. We had, we got solicitation requests from almost every major label. Um, Warner, people like that came to see us play in Chicago and New York and LA. Gene Simmons from Kiss, my you know childhood idol band, yep, calls me because dude, get this, all the you know how this works. When people send solicitation requests for the records, you have to write a password on the envelope, otherwise it doesn't get through the mailroom. Right. I had an extra envelope. I was sending out some stuff like the Interscope and Warner, and I had an extra envelope. And I thought I just remember reading that Simmons Records is about to restart, so I looked in a magazine and found like the, the address and put a CD in there with no contact information at all. Just cause I had an extra envelope. So what the heck? And I put a thing 30 days later, he calls, he doesn't call, but his assistant, Al, uh, Angus Vale, business manager tracks. Now I'm looking for a Jamie Rowe 
He goes, so Gene Gauge CD would like to speak with you and everything like that. I'm like freaking out. So literally, we're on, this is on a Saturday. We're going to St. Louis to open for Striper. And Gene Simmons calls me. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying, I like your CD and everything. Uh, tell me a little about, about the band. I remember he said, well, so, you know, you know, the guys were all really good friends. Uh, you know, bass, our bass player, Matthew, is kind of a chick magnet. He goes, what are you, an ogre? <laughs> and everything like that. It was just really, you know, and it's all the stuff you can imagine about Gene Simmons. But what I loved about him is he, he's one of those guys, you don't do small talk with him. You get to the point. And I really like that about him. And he, and we were called, we were called London Calling at the time. And he's like, first of all, the name, London Calling, it doesn't work. Yeah. He goes, we're going to change that. It's like calling my band Afghanistan. <laughs> Everything because none of you are British. But when he found out at the time I was 33 years old, that was the deal breaker. Mm. Because that was at the height of the teen pop thing, Britney right. Spears, NSYNC, and all that stuff. 33 was pretty old yeah. and everything. So he'd still had us come to meet him in Louisville when it was Kiss and Aerosmith. Okay. So after the show, we had a quote-unquote business meeting with Gene. And Gene's in full costume, still, in makeup and everything. He goes, gentlemen... I don't want you to get distracted, uh, distracted by this handsome face, but I don't want to talk business. <laughs> and he did. He told us, he basically told, it was really cool. He said a few sweet things for me just as a, as a childhood Kiss fan. It meant a lot to me. He told me, he goes, you're a great songwriter. I can't write songs like you can. Mm. He goes, here's what you need to do. He goes, you need to go find some tw- 19 and 20 year old kids, write and produce their music and own them as a corporation. Hmm. And I was like... Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So, uh, so you know what? Ten years later, probably a great idea because yeah. nothing happened to that band. But that was still, I'm very proud of that music. And that was that that experience was almost worth the whole thing of being in that band to have a meeting with Gene Simmons and all that stuff. But he basically said, he goes, hey, you know, I've got a voicemail from him too. He goes, everything's great. The fact that you're not 19, 20, it's the biggest problem. It's unfortunate. Yeah. And everything. Well, he was honest. So I can lose five pounds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dude. Well, how did you go from... Doing band stuff to doing solo stuff. So, so just out of necessity, I never wanted to be a solo artist. I've always been like a band guy. Bands you know are fun. I mean? be, be, yeah, I've always been a band guy. But I, uh, to be fair, I this I really haven't functioned as a. So I did one record in two thousand four, and what's funny is I remember using that, and I got paid a little something. It was Zonerman. It was, it was basically for the Spanish company. Okay, the Spanish version of Z- Z- division of Zonerman. And I recorded one, one solo record, and to be fair, that was when I was really hardcore in the London Calling, the band I was just talking mm-hmm. about. So I used any of the proceeds I got that to, to, to fuel London From Calling. The band, yeah. So I didn't really pursue that as a, as a solo artist thing, you know what I mean? But I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Around 2005, MySpace had you know, become a thing yeah. and everything. And I remember this guy, Sean Card messaged me and he worked for that band lit you remember lit really good band well and he had a, a website called metal sludge and so it was like a parody oh, yeah. thing he emailed me and said hey man jeremy pop off just lives over here oh does he yeah he um metal sludge uh had taken an interest in london calling and put us on like their little compilation stuff he goes hey i'm working with lit and we've been using this thing called myspace he goes you should really check it out i think it'd be something you'd be good at so i did and check it out and put the band on there I thought it was cool. Then you started getting into like a little like how you could change like the skin of MySpace. Right. So I learned all that stuff as a skill. And then I learned how, you know, oh wow, you can you can just start adding people and build up your following. Okay. To get to the point, I got to where I was pretty good at that. And people found out about it. 
And so all these Christian labels and artists have started coming to me and hiring me to run oh, their wow. MySpaces. So I had uh, Newsboys, yeah, uh, a thing from EMI called I Hear It First. I did their thing. Uh, Tree sixty three, Sandy Patty. No, I didn't do. I didn't do Sandy Patty. No Sandy Patty. <laughs> I don't think I did any. You know, I, but I did. But here's the thing. Then Integrity Music. I did an interview with CCM Magazine. Okay. And they were talking about this new thing of the new social media and stuff. And the guy talked to me about it a little bit. And the guy at Integrity Music, which was the Christian level, had Hillsong and everything like that. Yeah. He read the article and tracked me down. And all of a sudden, I start going. I worked exclusively for Integrity for a few years, Man. just running their social media, like basically MySpace, Pure Volume, Facebook when it was first starting, YouTube, um, all this stuff. So anyway, I got to be into that, and that led me to Carl Guardian. Carl had a friend, Bob Weil, that owned this company called True Tone, which is well, it was called Visual Sound at the time. It has the One Spot Pro That's power adapter, Visual Sound, everything, and. Uh, Bob was saying to Carl how he was lamenting, you know, like, you know, we really don't have anybody that do, does our social media stuff very well and everything. And uh, he goes, you need to talk to my friend, Jamie. <laughs> and it's like, and so Bob Wild called me out of the blue in 2010 20, and 20, no, 2011 and said, Hey, you know, I hear what you're doing. So if I could be interested, you know, possibly having a spot for you working with us. And I didn't want to move. So at the time I was like, no. I, I, I'd appreciate that, but I don't really want to relocate. Okay, Wait, so you were still in? I was in Indiana still. Okay. In, in Indiana. Now, deep down inside, I wanted to move because I never liked living in Indiana. I still, like, I, I, I love not living in Indiana. <laughs> so, but no, family was, was there and the life was there. It's a great place so, to be from. There you go. That's what my mom always said. Away from. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway. So, I just, no, I just, I just never felt like home to me. But anyway, but a long story short, Integrity Music moved to Colorado Springs and, they had offered me a really good deal to, to, to move. And I was actually considering it. Bob found out that I was considering it and found the salary he says, I'll pay him that. And so Carl lets me know this. Okay. And so Bob calls me again and says, Hey, you know, I'll talk to Carl and everything. So anyway, long story short, in May of 2012, I came to work for integrity. I worked in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And I worked the rest of the time in Indiana. And, I will be with him 10, ten years next yeah. March. It's totally worked Man. out. And now get this. So I get to be around music all the time. And, you know, so I still feel like I'm doing something artistic. I get, to, you know, a lot of the artists, you know, I spoke about when we first got here, yeah. like Florida, Georgia line, people like that. There's a lot of people use our stuff. So I always feel like I'm still in the game, so to yeah. speak. And for me, this is going to sound lame, but chasing music and, and like I have insurance now, you know, every, every, every two weeks I get a paycheck, you know, it's like yeah. after having the roller coaster for so many years and especially after Guardian had fizzled trying to restart that stuff, it was a welcome change of pace. You know, I have four kids, yeah. have a mortgage. This is ideal, but I love my job and, and I can really say that, you know, it's, it's still, it's like, I still get to explore, you know, I do, you know, Photoshop work. I do premiere Adobe premiere, the video work. I get to just, have fun. Dude, so. That's so cool that you came into that doing social media stuff. And now you're for lack of a better phrase, you're the head of their video department. No, I'm, the, doing, I'm the director of multimedia for the company. Yeah, yeah. That's, and you know, that's we're, so we're a, cool. a really successful company with, with nine employees. Man. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you probably, you probably have a one spot here, right? Or something like that. You probably have so. something. Yeah. Got, so no, got, most people have something of ours yes. and that's great. And like so the owner and the people, it, it really is like a family. It's, it's, it's a dream job. So yeah. to speak. So during that time, but, oh, how I got on this in the first place, you asked me why the solo music. Ah. So I'm, I'm happy and content being Mr. True Tone and working yeah. here and stuff. It's great. 
I just started writing songs again with never with the intention that I'm going to record these. I just yeah. write, you know, you, you know how you get wired. You hear something in your head, you got to finish it or it's going to drive you nuts. Absolutely. And so I got that a lot. And so I'm not writing for Guardian. I'm not writing for a I'm just writing songs. And during this time is when I discovered country radio. Mm-hmm. And I love, you know, everything I love about 80s rock and pop is I find in modern country. Yep. So it's, it's, it's 80s rock with an accent. And so, really so I started is. writing that stuff. And I would write songs for Amber, my wife. That were just for her. I make maybe, maybe I'll make a garage band demo of it just to hear how it right. would sound. I did that, and then a friend of mine asked me. Uh, he's, he's I know you've always wanted to play at the Bluebird. He goes, I'm doing a writer's round. Do you want to play? And so I did. Yeah. And I played those songs. I decided I'm not going to win there. I played one Guardian song. No one knows me. No one's on song. I'm just going to play these songs I've been writing for Amber yeah. and stuff at home. And people seem to really like them. I'm, I started to say they loved them, but I think they, that, that may be exaggerating. They really liked them. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I should do something. So that prompted me to make a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. And I, I put up, I think it was like $8,000 or something like that. Like, look, I can make the record for this. No bells and whistles. Really stripped down. And I put it up there thinking... No one's going to fund it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's all or nothing. So, and people say, why aren't you recording music? Well, I tried. You didn't want it. You know what I mean? Right. I literally had that attitude. Didn't expect it. And so it got funded in 11 days and it went over and beyond. And so I was like, wow, people still interested. So I got to make this record with no agenda other than just playing music that I'd written, you know, and like I said earlier and stuff, not just writing with the three crayons I give you for Christian music, but the full set and just writing about life. And everything, and it's my favorite thing I've ever recorded, dude. And your videos are really good too. That's me. I do them all. I knew yeah. that. So it's like, yeah. I, I but see, the, all that comes from my experience of working at True Tone yeah. and learning stuff. So I love it. Um, but to be fair, man, I'm not. If I couldn't have had a Kickstarter funded, I could have never made that record. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm not in a position to. Hey, here's eight to ten thousand dollars to spend on a hobby. Right. I'm not. I'm going to do it again here pretty soon, too. I'm going to ask for another round, because I've been, still been writing. And uh, it's going to be up to people if they want it or not. Yeah. But it's really freeing to not have to write thinking, okay, is this going to fit on a format? Yeah. Is this going to offend a, a bookstore owner in Nebraska? Right. Just write songs. And whatever comes out, it's really freeing. So let's write some yeah. stuff. All right. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I would actually love that. I would for love real. that. And I'm not the co-writer type, but... I would love to write with you. That'd be a blast. You know what I mean? Yeah. It'll, first of all, it'll get cut. You know, it'll, it'll make you tens and tens of cents, <laughs> you know? But, um, no, it, it, you know, it's a little disappointing because I have this record called This Is Home. That's my plug. This Home. I and love the record. Where can people find it? Uh, it's just on Spotify, all the digitals. Okay. Spotify and stuff. It, somebody did a, a vinyl release. You can find them online and stuff. But you, most people just do what I do. They do Spotify, iTunes, yeah. you know, Apple, um, YouTube, you know what I mean? I would. I'm more concerned. I would rather people hear the music than buy the music at this point. Yeah. That's more important to me. You yeah. know what I mean? uh, but to be fair, I'm really disappointed at how little people have heard the record. But at the same time, you know, I'm expecting full time results with part time effort. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's just reality, dude. It's so. it's hard. We found out after doing this podcast for a year, and thankfully, we're up to about a thousand downloads a week. Wow. But Until now, <laughs> unsubscribe. <laughs> no, don't, don't. But it's like we found out from Apple Music that they're during the pandemic. <coughs> Sorry, you all right? Yeah, I just need to cough. During the pandemic, every musician, athlete, actor, whatever, started a podcast, and mm-hmm. at one time there was over two million podcasts. Wow. So 
to get people to find you, yeah, you could have the best stuff in the world. Needle in the haystack. Yeah. Yep. And that's, that's, I, I, I feel your pain. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, and you put a lot more work into your record than I do the podcast, but it's hard, man. It's hard. And if you're not Joe Rogan when you start this podcast, yeah. then it's really hard to grow. Yeah, and then you, then you then you have to fight that oh me too thing, not in the me too movement, but like right, right. Oh yeah, I have a podcast too. I, I do. You know, it's like man, and it's like you know, it's just like this. It's still the good news and the bad news at this point with technology. Anybody can make a record. Yeah. The bad news is anybody can, anybody make, a can make a record. It's the whole thing. There's a yeah. glut of so much. It's hard to, to filter out. And uh, it's just probably the same thing in podcast world. You know yep. what I mean? So I feel you. That's what. Uh, Steve Lukather says about YouTube and Pro Tools, he goes, somewhere there's a seven-year-old sitting in his bedroom who's already better than all of us. Yeah, for real, huh? Because they could see that. They yep. could hear that. They figured out how to do it all. Uh-huh. And they just had a year and a half sitting at home. Yeah. <laughs> now real. they're great well, at it. Well, we talking about Sweetwater in our conversation before we started the podcast and everything. I remember that somebody was telling me that their, the amount of requests and sales calls they were getting from people wanting home broadcasting zoom all the stuff like that and all setup stuff like it was just overwhelming yeah and so they had they were having like record sales during the pandemic oh, I you know bet. I mean? so, yeah mm. well dude you want to do my lightning round what's that i'm going to ask you a question and you just give me the first, first thing, thing. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay <laughs> disclaimer on the front end so no what's your favorite book favorite book is the ragamuffin gospel by brennan manning nice yeah you bath or a shower guy? Shower. What's the last gift you gave someone? Uh, you know, I treated my wife with a, 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 a thing. I, since I'm a singer, I, this morning I woke up and said, Honey, I'm going to give you a gift. <laughs> I said, That's yours. You can keep it. <laughs> no, that's always been my joke gift. Hey, I'm going to give you a gift. <laughs> but actually, like the literal last gift I bought was probably for my, um, let me think it's, I'm trying to think, Bella, my daughter, was just with us for the summer, for the, the month. Probably for her, but I can't think of what it was because the thing is, it's like, you know, when, when you're, you, this is not the lighting around stuff, but when you, when you have, when you have kids that you don't get to spend all every day of yeah. the week, basically you're giving you a gift every day of the right. week, you know? So I'd say, actually, though, to be honest, the biggest gift I did was uh, two nights ago. I knew my wife was wore out, so I came home and made dinner and everything. I had everything ready for her by the time she got home. So if nice. that qualifies as a gift, that's it. Okay. That's absolutely. You may have to cut that down, but sorry. No. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Do you believe in Bigfoot? Um, no, I don't. Okay. What's the first concert you saw? How old were you? And did you get a t-shirt? Cheap Trick, 10 years old. Yes, I did. Yes. And here's what I can tell you about that show. It was the Dream Police Tour. Oh, my gosh. So good. Um, the Romantics opened. And nice. I hadn't heard of them at the time. And what I remember is that the drummer and the singer switched places for a song. And I just, my 10 year old brain just could not. In the romantics? That. Yeah. I'm like, what is going on? I, just, I couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? But they came out in their red leather suits and everything. It was yeah. just really cool. But dude, there's things I remember. And the thing is cool is, you know, they have that set list off FM site, the oh, archive yeah, yeah. set list. I was able to go back like a year ago and, and see the set list that, you know, you don't remember when you're 10. And I remember hearing Heaven Tonight. And I remember like the lights being all white and all the haze. It looked like cobwebs, all the thing and stuff. And that's the best way a 10 year old mind can describe it. But my gosh, dude, I mean, dude, I, you can see the hair on my arms yeah. here. Yeah. Dude, Cheap Trick is still just oh, extremely important to me. You know, they have been riding <clears throat> different waves for 50 years. Their last two or three records they made here in town yeah. are killer. Yes, dude, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fanboy. Man, Robin Zander, <clears throat> I don't know how old he is. 
He still sounds amazing. Still. And yeah. he chain smokes Marlboro yes. through the show <clears throat> while he's singing. <laughs> I, uh, no, it's, it's, it's funny. If, if people, and I always say this about Cheap Trick, the thing is, you know, all these bands break up and then come back, have these serious, huge reunions. Right. Well, the thing is, Cheap Trick would have been a great beneficiary of that. Yeah. But they never stopped. They always mm-hmm. kept working. So they never had their big return because they've always been working. Yeah, they never went away. And I almost, you know, I'll see, you know, somebody, oh, they're reuniting and it's all this big hype. You know, Cheap Check's right here. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they're every bit as worthy of this attention. You know what I mean? So I saw a quote by Rick Nielsen and he said, we never really got any better, but we were pretty good. When we, <laughs> but he said, but we were pretty good when we started out. So I guess it worked out all right. Yes, it did. <laughs> Dude, those are those are great songs, and, and Robin Zander is is the king in as far as vocals. Absolutely, he. Uh, we went and saw them downtown years ago, and we we all parked at the Hilton, uh-huh. and we walked to the venue. So we were back in the Hilton afterwards. It's yeah. like, all right, let's just go hang out for ten minutes, then we'll get out of here. Robin Zander walked in. And we go, dude, dude, can we buy you a beer or something? And he said, sure. And he came uh-huh. over. Did you guys go to the show? Yeah, it was great. And he was drinking a beer and, of course, smoking a Marlboro Red. <laughs> and, <laughs> wow. And he, go, he looks at his watch. He goes, well, it's bus call. I got to go. Thanks for the beer, guys. And I said, can I ask you one question? How do you keep your voice still just so pure and powerful and he finished his beer and took a big drag on his cigarette and goes clean living boy no. <laughs> and then he just walked out the door it was like oh that's the greatest story wow ever. no it, it really it really is amazing because he can he can go from sweet to sour real fast on his vocals yeah and it's just it's, it's he's, he's definitely my absolute most major influence from really me. oh yeah absolutely yeah. no hands down have you heard his country record no i didn't know he made one yeah it's cool no I remember his, his Warner that or interesting was that his soul record like back in the day. Yeah, that that was more of a rock. Well, he did kind of a country one here. Really? Yeah. So it was was it on a major label or something? Because I'm I'll, really surprised it's not on my radar. I'll so. find it. Yeah, I, I, I can't yeah. remember. I can't remember. Yeah. What's the last movie you saw in a theater? Oh wow, that's been a while. That has literally been a while. I think it was probably. Oh, you know what it was? It was uh, Dr. Doodle. That's how really? long ago it was. Yeah. I saw that. My my wife has a real sweet spot for like those like, like yeah. campy, like children's books made into movies. And stuff. So oh, we yeah. went to see Dr. Doodle. And gosh, that's, gosh, that's been over two years, yeah. if not three. We do the same stuff. Yeah. If the, we love going to uh, the newest animated movies uh-huh. and we sit way in the back and I always watch the moms and dads and the kids yeah. and see what's funny to the kids uh-huh. versus what's funny to the moms and dads. And there's always something in yeah. there that the producers have put in there for the parents. You know, yeah. the kids just goes over their head. We yeah. got to keep the parents here. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite song that you'd like to sing along with in the car? Uh, that always changes. But right now, as of this week, it's 17 going under by a guy named Sam Fender. That's my favorite song right now that I'm singing in the car. What is it? It's 17 going under. Okay. It's, uh, it's a British guy that's funny. I just actually just discovered him last week and I really like him. Um, 20, 25, 26, 27 year old guy, singer songwriter that really has some depth in his lyrics and his melodies are cool, but he doesn't have the traditional songwriting structure of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, pre chorus. Right. So, you know, <clears throat> and it's really fresh to me. It almost sounds to me like if, the alarm, band the alarm in the early oh, yeah. 80s, 
had like unreleased songs from that period and stuff. This guy's got them. That's what it sounds like to me. Interesting. Sam Fender. I'd, I'd recommend checking it out. Okay. It's, it may be an acquired taste because he's really got a heavy British accent in his voice. Yeah. But there's something about his music I love. And I sing that song every day on the, on the way to the office. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, what song do you wish you would have written or sang on? Oh, man. <laughs> wow. See, I got different reasons and stuff like that. You know what? Since we're in a cheap trick, cheap trick mode, man. I was gonna say I love "Hello" there just for the energy. Yeah, but Southern Girls, oh, up in color, that's an all-time favorite for me. But this, yeah. the thing is, but I can say that that would be fun. But there's also like, dude, I would have loved to have written like "Boys of Summer," you know what I mean, oh, man. or something like that. Yeah. Something of depth that is cool. But man, um, dude, I mean, I would I would have loved to have written "Rock and Roll All Night," you know. What I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, but these are all nostalgic reasons. You yeah. Know I mean? So, I like it. They're they're good though. Yeah. So, uh, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? That's a horrifying thought. I know it. That's really horrifying. Um, I think about this a lot. And so, like I said, I, I grew up like not with a lot of money and not like, you know, any direction or anything. Like I said, my parents were older. My father had passed. Um, I didn't really have a lot of mentors in my life. And this is, I'm not going to degrade anybody who's, this is their life thing, but man, I could have, I could have seen myself easily just, you know, being the guy that works at twice daily selling, you know, cigarettes and gas. Yep. And which is an honorable job. Yeah. But it's just, it would have been a lot different for me because, because of the opportunities that someone like me would have had. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, music really brought me out a lot of stuff. And I, and I think that was all God's plan too. You know what I mean? It's like the whole fact that, you know. Oh, absolutely. That, you know, that God was even, you know, in my life at 17. Like, you know, that's when I decided, you know, I believe, you know, yeah, I think Christians are hypocrites. Yeah, I think most Christians are jerks. God hasn't done anything to me. Yeah. And that's what, that was the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to be a believer in Jesus and this is how I'm going to live my life. You know what I mean? And uh, that's that. So I think God, you know, <clears throat> not the, and I don't even know the theological background of this, but, you know, it's like, Sometimes I've heard people say, you know, God gives you the desires of your heart. In in my case, he really did a lot because yeah. I made a list like when I was like 19 of all these things I wanted to do when I was 25. And of that list, almost everything happened except for one thing. It was a gold record. Yeah. I won a gold record. And I still have never gotten one for Jamie Rowe or for Guardian or something like that. But I did write a song for Toby Mac. Oh, and dang. it launched his solo career. And I have a gold record on my wall for that. That's so cool. it took 10 years after the fact. That, hey, man. You know, it's just really cool. So I'm... Um, I'm going to celebrate those victories because yeah. I could have easily just been a footnote of, of life and, you know, peaked at 16. Right. You know? So of course you would have been behind the counter going, can I get you a hot dog with the Slurpee? <laughs> yeah. or, or they say, man, don't you sing with like Julio and the hooligans down there? You know, <laughs> yeah, that's me. So, yeah. How can you tell that's me? Oh, cause yeah. I got the Julio and the hooligans shirt on. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So what's next? What haven't I asked you about? Man, you know what? I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the video stuff because I'm really proud of those videos. Shoot, yeah, um, man. I'm really kind of obsessed right now with like, you know, like I want to make a short film. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? And stuff of just learning that part. And so to me, it's, it's all, it's all still connected. You know, I, creativity is my drug as far as that, as far as like it, it's, it's my sedative. It makes me feel good yeah. to either write a song, you know, take a good photo, create a, a video or something. It just, it's, it's like, wow, you can look at this, that, that, that making something from nothing. Yeah. That's that. Um, I love working at True Tone. I hope I hope I'm there for another ten years. Um, I hope to write a song with you that people like. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, you know, and if I do get to make another record, I hope I hope so because like I said I'm I'm 51. Yeah. And you know, I'm just I'm very I'm I'm actually depressingly realistic about <laughs> about what, you know, opportunities I have. Yeah. And everything, you know, it's like, you know, and you know, I'm probably not going to write a song that a 9-year-old girl is going to loop on Spotify enough to make money. Nope. You know what I mean? But I do have something to say. I've gotten better with, you know, what I want to say. Yep. Um, I think I can still write a pretty good hook. It's just a matter of like, okay, where do I find time? Where do I find money? Where do I find an outlet? And where do I find the people who want to hear it? Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's it. That's awesome, <laughs> man. What are your socials? My socials is um, Jamie Rowe, J-M-I-E-R-O-W-E. I have that on everything, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I don't use my Twitter anymore at all. So if it's just, Twitter's just become too toxic for me. Yeah. But I still have it there to keep my name. Um, I'm most actively on Instagram um, and my Facebook page. Uh, I have a personal, which you're always welcome to friend if you want, but I also have a music page. And so uh, that's, that's basically where I can be found. That's awesome. Dude, thanks for coming out, man. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm sorry. I, I know this I talk is, fast, and sometimes I talk in circles, so I hopefully no. I haven't wasted anyone's time. But no, this is thanks great. For the, this has been a good hang. So. Awesome. We'll see you soon. Rock and roll.